Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Motos and Friends, brought to you by the editorial staff at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week brings you a V-twin extravaganza. Well, <laughs> that's a bit of an exaggeration of course, but suffice it to say that in the first segment, Nick DeSena talks to us about Ducati's new Street Fighter V2. That's the one based on the Panigale V-twin, not the V4. The twin-cylinder motor is, to some people, the very essence of Ducati, and the Street Fighter, with the latest generation V-twin motor, proves that Ducati is still very much committed to it. I recorded the second segment on our recent trip to Queensland, Australia. As you may know, the original Brough Superior motorcycles were first manufactured in England in the 15 years or so before the outbreak of the Second World War. At the time, the Broth was so exquisitely made that George Broth claimed them to be the Rolls-Royce of motorcycles. And indeed, they really were. The Broth Superior name was purchased a few years ago, and a French design company developed a new version of the Broth based on the original ethos of innovation and spectacular quality. Serial production in very limited quantities started in 2016. Fred Drake is the importer and distributor of Broth motorcycles in Australia. And I was fascinated to visit the Brisbane showroom and chat with him about the motorcycles that he has such passion for. I urge you to visit Fred's website and take a look. You'll find it at brothsuperioraustralia.com.au. I promise you won't be disappointed. Well, we're talking about the 2022 Ducati Street Fighter V2. Kind of the, uh, we'll say, anticipated follow-up to the Street Fighter V4 that came out uh, just a few years ago. And, you know, ever since the Panigale V2 hit the market, one of the main questions that came out of that, that bike's launch uh, for people that were focused more on street riding and still wanted something that's incredibly performance-oriented is, where's the Street Fighter version? So... <laughs> Here we are. Okay. So uh, what, what exactly is the engine in the V2, if you can just refresh our memories? Yeah, so it's the same 955cc 90-degree uh, super quadro engine. So it's been around for a, a few years now. Um, uh, you know, obviously, it's derived from the Panigale V2, um, and it is pretty much a direct drop-in to the Street Fighter. There are just couple little tweaks obviously so uh, with its peak performance numbers we're seeing uh, 153 uh, horsepower at 10,750 rpm and then we have 74.8 foot pounds of torque at 9,000 rpm and the main main change between the two engines outside of the street fighter just losing a little bit of peak horsepower, just a couple points there. And to be perfectly honest, it's not something that I think I would ever really notice. Um, but the main change between the two engines, in fact, the only significant change is that the Street Fighter uses shorter final drive gear ratios. Uh, so just essentially using a larger, larger sprocket in the rear, <clears throat> And really, that just allows the street fighters, um, uh, the street fighters, to access torque on a much more readily available 
uh, capacity. Sure, it's built for acceleration rather than top speed. Yeah, so it does sacrifice a little bit of top speed, which is fine in a street fighter capacity because although this thing is more than racetrack capable, which I went and tested the theory on my own at Buttonwillow Raceway. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, it's still first and foremost going to be living most of its life on the street. So you're going to want a lot of that good low end torque readily available whenever you, uh, you know, call upon it. So compared to the Panigale V2, it makes more torque uh, according to the, the spec sheets that they've provided in the dyno chart that they provided essentially everywhere in the power band. Uh, so right off the line and, you know, all the way up, you know, till you're, you're banging off the rev limiter, it's making more torque all the time. And really that just translates to a bike that just has a little bit more, let's say, uh, effervescence off the apex. Um, you know, it wants to, you know, really just kind of charge out of corners. When you get on the gas, it really just wants to go, go, go. And, you know, it, since we're talking about the engine, we might as well kind of dive into that. You know, it's, it, it is making, you know, round 150 horsepower uh, at, you know, if you were to dyno it at the rear wheel, you know, you're gonna have to shave that number a little bit, but that's the type of horsepower that experienced riders, you know, um, intermediate riders can wrap their heads around and start to explore the entire breadth of that horsepower, right? instead of something like a leader bike, which can be become a little bit more overwhelming for, for certain riders. Cause let's be honest, leader bikes are just, well, it's a lot to power to, or a lot of power to manage. Whereas this thing, I feel like it's, you know, right on that sweet spot, kind of on the upper end of that sweet spot where you get lots of just very traditional low end Ducati, uh, L twin or V twin torque. And then you just have this huge mid-range power band to really play with. And then you still get a little bit of a top end overrun. Now, when we're talking about the engines specifically, it's, it's kind of a, it's rev range is sort of broken up into, I would classify it as maybe 2.5 personalities sort of, you know, it, it is smooth and it pulls all the way through the, the rev range, but below 6,000 RPM, it's, it's a more calmer street fighter, we'll say. And that's actually good because when you're rolling around just in the city and just riding at slower paces, right? the bike is totally manageable and very just, uh, I don't want to say docile necessarily, but it we'll say it's very amenable. You know, it's a very friendly motorcycle. It's not, you know, jumpy or jerky and always trying to yank your arms off at every stoplight. It's just a very smooth um, you know, obviously performance oriented bike, but then you start wicking it up past that six grand, um, area. And that's when the thing really starts to wake up. And then by about eight grand, you just kind of get this rush that really <laughs> starts pulling in, into the, the uh, upper rev range. And then it starts curtailing just a little bit before red line, but, nice. you know, as you're in the canyons and, uh, you know, just enjoying a nice spirited pace in the canyons, having that that good window between maybe five and eight thousand RPM. That's essentially where I would sort of live, uh, you know, with the bike when I'm just kind of running around in the canyons and having some fun on the street ride. But on the on the racetrack, you can really let the street fighter uh, stretch its legs 
and that sort of Panigale-esque uh, top end it definitely comes into play. And that's, that's definitely really cool. Um, so, you know, this engine, it just, for me, um, more than enough horsepower on tap. And it never really just goes into that, that leader bike territory that takes all your focus, you know, complete devotion to what you're doing. You can still have tons of fun. And, you know, I feel like the, uh, the Street Fighter V2 is just a little bit more free spirited in that respect. So I think it, it might appeal to a broader audience, you know, not just because it's a Street Fighter configuration and upright naked, so a little more comfortable, but its personality is a, a little more welcoming than, than your, your average leader bike, we'll say. Yeah, it's just just not as intimidating. I mean, when you've got these slightly more sensible horsepower bikes, you can get to full throttle a lot quicker. So as you come out of a corner, you know, you're on the leader bikes, you're you can be so intimidated by them unless you really have the traction control dialed in well and you really trust it. It's going to take you longer to get to full throttle. But on these slightly more sensible horsepower bikes, you can get to full throttle pretty quickly and and you don't have to don't have to concern yourself so much that it's going to jettison you to the moon, you know, over the high side. So, yeah. And ultimately, for me, that sort of translates into more fun at some level. Yeah, I, I get it. Totally get it. 150 horsepower is still very respectable. I'm... Yeah, yeah. That was the status quo for superbikes for many years. For a while. I mean, uh, just as a reference point, uh, that's, I think it's more horsepower or equivalent horsepower to what Carl Fogarty's old superbikes used to have. Right. Definitely more horsepower than uh 996 and 998 wow i think pretty sure 999 as well yeah that that does put it into perspective doesn't it really yeah because that that generation goes back you know over a decade now but realistically that's not all that far away and when our quote-unquote middleweight motorcycle is making those kinds of numbers well, I think we've made quite a bit of progress over the years, haven't we? <laughs> Speaking of electronics, um, it does have essentially the same electronics package as uh, as the, the Panigale V2, which is derived from the Panigale V4. So, okay. you know, your, your standard sort of um, Ducati electronics package that is seen on maybe getting this wrong, but I think almost every motorcycle, if not every motorcycle in the Ducati line currently uses a six axis IMU. Um, I'm pretty confident in saying that I'm pretty sure almost all of them do. Maybe, no, I think all of them do. But, you know, Ducati is a leader in the electronics department. and have been for quite a long time, Ducati Aprilia Triumph. And, um, you know, with the, the standard assortments, you have uh, cornering ABS, uh, multi-level. You have a multi-level uh, traction control, which is their Evo 2 um, version. You have uh, wheelie control. You have uh, up-down quick shifter. Again, that's their Evo 2 system. And then you have also uh, engine brake management. So you can just adjust uh, engine braking. Now, some of the other little doodads on there, you also have um, 
Bluetooth connectivity to the 4.3 full TFT dash. Uh, so you can use um, uh, the data analyzer as well as uh, uh, you know the other functions of the the Ducati multimedia system um, that we've kind of come to expect from brands like Ducati that offer uh, functionality kind of even in that realm. But when we're talking about the electronics overall, <clears throat> you know this is again the reason I am, I'm always uh, I give a lot of praise to. Ducati's electronics is because they're programmed in a way to <clears throat> help you go faster and do it in a much more uh, safe manner. So let's just go ahead and start with your ABS modes. So you have three to choose from. Uh, you have uh, the first mode, which is the least restrictive of the bunch. It disables the IMU, so it just kind of gives it dummy ABS. And it also disables uh, ABS in the rear. That's going to be your track setting, essentially. Um, you can trail break as deep as you dare, and it's going to be up to the rider at that point. Um, and then you have your ABS level two, which is cornering enhanced, and it also has the slide by brake function. So you just stomp on the rear brake, and then you can initiate um, you know, backing it in, which if you own a street fighter, you're probably going to try at some point. I definitely <laughs> did. And Interestingly enough, it's, you know, level two, even at the racetrack is pretty much the level I stuck with for the vast majority of the day. On the street, you have the cornering function enabled. So the bike is able to detect how much braking input you're, you're adding as you increase or decrease lean. I think it's an incredibly valuable function for any motorcycle. For sure. And I really didn't have any significant issues on the racetrack, even when I was, you know, pushing for a, a decent lap time. I mean, the only time I was triggering ABS is when I was lifting the rear end through a bumpy braking zone. So a very heavy braking zone where I knew the, the rear end is going to come up because it's basically getting kicked up by something in the road surface. At that point, you'd feel a little bit of pulsing in the lever, but never really decreasing the amount of brake pressure you have. So it's not one of these really spooky moments. If you think back to sort of uh, more primitive ABS systems that would actually hinder you. Right, right. And then your level three is, um, you know, your, your most aggressive uh, ABS map. Uh, traction control, plenty of uh, different settings to go through there. In the sport uh, riding mode, you know, it defaults to level three, which is, fairly low but that's just for the sporty road uh oriented tc it's um you know running in a track day it's more than happy to go and do some laps in that setting so it's it's not exactly conservative in that regard but it will step in when it needs to and you know when you go lower uh into level two you get a little bit more wheel spin just allows you to kind of get on the gas even earlier and at higher lean angles and a lot more aggressively. I shouldn't say a lot more aggressively, but more aggressively. Level one is definitely the rowdiest of the bunch. Uh, for me, I pretty much stuck with uh, TC level two and three throughout the day. You know, as we experienced a little bit more tire wear, um, kind of bumped it up to three and we got some higher temperatures, but you know, whatever. And then wheelie control. Well, you know, like we said, 150-ish horsepower, it is manageable 
So with wheelie control off, I didn't find the bike to just be this untenable rowdy beast. I think you can easily control uh, wheelies with the, the throttle, just modulating it and, and, you know, covering the rear brake. So in a racetrack setting, turned it off just so I could really get that nice solid drive that I was looking for. And even in the lower settings of wheelie control, it doesn't really hinder you. I just turned it off because at Button Willow, there are a couple places where um, if you're hard on the gas, a couple of bumps here and there will pick up the front end, um, you know, kind of coming out of the wheelie bump and in the direction we were going, coming out of, uh, coming into turn two, there's a nice little bumpy section where you can always loft the front end. So turning off wheelie control and just allowing me to like pick up from that section. I uh, don't think it gave me any time, but it was really cool. And uh, I felt cool. So that's the important part. <laughs> then you have your quick shifter uh, up and down both directions. Works incredibly well on the street or at the racetrack. Had no issues in pretty much any regard. You know, Ducati always does a, a fairly not a fairly good job. They do a good job with their quick shifters. It's pretty rare that we have we have complaints about those, especially on the performance oriented models. Um, I remember back with the Super Sport uh, 950, that one could get a little jumpy at low RPM. The Pikes Peak uh, V4, you know, just really minor complaints there. But overall, it's uh, uh, you know with our sport oriented models they do really well. And even with the Pikes Peak, once you, once you get above, uh, I think between like the transition between like second and third gear, but anyway, Street Fighter, very good. And then you have your, uh, your last part of the uh, safety package, which is uh, engine braking management. So you can just adjust the amount of engine braking on three levels. Um, that's pretty self-explanatory. I actually ran it with a most engine braking. Uh, that's just kind of how I liked to run that engine. And uh, it's not overbearing at all. So I, I, I think even in the most aggressive setting, it's still something that that's, you know, real world applicable. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it's sort of the, the last sort of um, kind of the icing on the cake is the riding modes. So you have sport, road and wet because it's a street fighter. You know, it's not a Panigale. It doesn't have track or race or anything like that. You know, although... We still took it to track. This thing is more than racetrack capable, as we've already kind of hinted at. For sure. Uh, sport, that's your most athletic mode of the bunch. Uh, really just lets you get into the thick of it um, pretty much on a whim without being snatchy. Um, if you're familiar with Ducati sport riding maps, it's definitely in line with those. And uh, so that should be pretty par for the course. I enjoyed it a ton. Nice. Um, it's pretty much the, the mode that I... I lived with and um, you know, road just curtails it a little bit, makes it a bit more manageable than wet um, is obviously your, your rain mode cuts peak horsepower to, I believe 110 horsepower. If I'm recalling that correctly. Um, so there is a bit of a power um, power curbing going on, which is fine. Cause if you're riding in the wet, you definitely can't use all your power anyway. Um, and then within each of those modes, you can customize the electronics that we just described, uh, you know, as much as you, as you want. So really just look at those riding modes as 
corrals for all of your, your basic settings. Sounds good. So yeah, that's, that's electronics in a nutshell. All right. Since the suspension is not electronic, what suspension is there on there? I assume it's, uh, it's gotta be pretty decent. Yeah, it's, it's actually derived straight from the Panigale V2. Okay. Because it is the younger brother of the, the Panigale series, doesn't get the full, the full tilt electronic suspension. We're using pretty much the same uh, Showa fork with a Sax shock in the rear. Okay. Both fully adjustable. And in my experience, the damping settings, spring settings, everything is, is geared for balance between road and track. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So, and that, again, that totally makes sense because this thing sure. is going to lead most of its life on the street, like we've already said. But on the road, I think you get a lot of nice compliance. It's, I'll say this, the stock settings are firm, but fair. Okay. Um, you know, obviously what I mean by that is it's sport oriented, it's still a very sporty machine, but doesn't take it to that level where it's just pure discomfort, where every, every bump and bruise you hit in the road is just going straight to the rider and just, right. Unless you're really hammering, it kind of makes it a not so pleasant experience. In this case, it's right on that edge where you get the feedback you want, you get the chassis control that you want, and it doesn't take it to a realm of, you know, discomfort. And so that's good. And then when we talk about practical adjustment, you know, what you can actually get out of the suspension. Um, the only thing for me at the racetrack, and as we started <clears throat> kind of pushing and trying to get a little bit more out of the bike and see what we could do, I would say for my size, I'm, I haven't weighed myself in a while, but I'm anywhere from the 180 to 190 pound range um, without gear. So add gear, that's another 30-ish pounds. Um, I would say this bike has sprung a little soft for me. So that just translated to me really using <clears throat> a lot of the adjustment range of that shock. I was still able to get the V2 in the direction that I wanted to go and pretty much where I needed, needed to go by, you know, session three or four. Then the rest of the day was kind of just having fun and burning up tires. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if there's an upgraded S model, uh, typically the Olin stuff is uh, uh, sprung and or damped a little bit firmer. Um, so it would kind of take it into that next level and make it a little bit more track oriented. However, you'd be potentially sacrificing some of that street real world application. So that is something to consider. Um, now, my personality type is I would always kind of geared towards that S model because it's gold and Olens and has little blue anodized things and <laughs> kind of like a fish and attracted to shiny stuff. <laughs> so there's that, but on a functional level, um, you know, the suspension does more than fine. And that kind of leads us into the, the main chassis changes, right? So it still uses the uh, monocoque uh, chassis design, which means that the the frame and the, the, the head tube essentially is bolted directly to that 955cc engine and the swing arm is mounted directly to the 
the engine uh, subframe to the engine. You see a theme here. Um, and all that does is really just shed weight. I mean, this thing only comes in at 440 pounds, wet, ready to go. Um, that's fairly felt for any sport bike. Yeah. You know, that that's this is a strategy that we've seen uh, come out of Ducati and other European manufacturers for many years now. Um, but uh, Ducati is definitely this is something that they, they've run with and kind of pioneered in a lot of ways. So we have to give credit where credit is due. Um, and just with respect to the, the chassis and its handling, that's kind of the big takeaway for me with this bike. So not only do you have that, that really approachable uh, horsepower figure in the back of your mind and an engine that you can really play with in a lot of different situations, whether you're on the street or the track, and then you have a motorcycle that just handles incredibly well. It's something that I can't overstate enough. Uh, the way this thing hips into corners, it just gives you the confidence and the feedback you want out of the front end, out of the, you know, the upright handlebar. And you can really just kind of pile drive that front end into a corner on the brakes when you're at the racetrack or when you're whipping around the canyons. And it just steers so nicely. And, and I think the balance that they've gotten out of this chassis is probably the highlight for me. Really? It's something that I joined on the Panigale P2 as well. And there are a couple little changes here. So the, the main, main change to the, the chassis is that uh, they've extended the swing arm uh, slightly. So it's grown, if I'm getting my figures right, um, basically a half inch. I think it's 0 0.6 inches, if I'm recalling that figure correctly, which means that the, um, the wheel, the wheelbase has grown over the Panigale to 57.7 inches. Um, now it still uses the same, uh, steep brake, which is 24 degrees. And then, you know, a shortish trail figure of uh, 3.70 inches but um you know it's it's one of those things where it, they they extended the swing arm mainly just to give it a little bit more stability for street riding i do think that comes through because again it's it's not as racetrack oriented as the panigale so it doesn't necessarily need as short of a wheelbase um and the other the other thing to to factor in is that your riding position is actually different than the Panigale. So you are distributing more weight over the rear end um, versus a, a super sport riding position where your upper body is actually moved towards the front end of the bike much more um, because you have clip on handlebars, obviously. Okay. In this case, you're sat more upright and you're distributing that weight rearward. So adding a little bit more to the rear end of the bike and creating stability, helping with that weight distribution. Uh, that's something that's, that's quite important. Um, but overall the chassis, I had zero complaints with, um, that's something that, uh, you know, I definitely love about this motorcycle. Awesome. The brakes are going to be the standard Brembo's I would think. Yeah. Same kit as the Panigale V2. So no real surprises there. There's a minor change in that going to the street fighter, uh, 
Ducati decided to run a less aggressive brake pad compound for the front. And I say, I would say that was, that's one of my few sort of minor functional complaints about the street fighter. And it's not even a really big one because the solution is you just change the brake pads. Um, with this less aggressive compound that's more aimed at sporty street riding, you might not get the same attack that you would on the Panigale V2 on the braking system, despite the fact that the hard parts are exactly the same. You still have Brembo M432s, uh, 320 millimeter rotors, et cetera, et cetera. That hasn't changed at all. So just changing that, that brake pad, uh, you know, it just doesn't have that same initial bite that you might want out of something that's of this, uh, this level of sportiness. Now that's not to say that these brakes don't work well, they do. There's tons of power, just as you'd experience on the Pentagali V4. Great feel in my opinion. It's just that initial snap when you're you know, trying to get the bike pitched into a turn at the racetrack or riding, you know, you're, you're going on a good one in the canyons. I do miss that initial little snap. And again, I've been a little long-winded about a brake pad compound but the fix is to just go to a more aggressive compound once those brake pads run out. And that's really the only difference in terms of braking capability, stopping power, that's gonna be the same from the Panigale V2. It's just that initial bite that I, I really, I actually kind of love it in sport bikes because it matches the, the intent that I have when riding. But uh, it's a personal preference thing too. So some riders might get on it and be like, no, I'm, I'm actually into this. So no idea what you're talking about, Nick. I think it, it is very different on the street because the street produces lots of surprises or can. Uh, the racetrack produces almost no surprises. The, the idea of the track is that it's entirely predictable. So it's very easy once you get into a rhythm, it's very easy to know exactly where your brake points are and exactly how much brake you, you, you use going into the corners. On the street, some dickhead pulls out in front of you and you suddenly panic and grab a, grab a handful. You're going to appreciate that you don't have that, just that initial level of, of aggression that, that could potentially, um, well, I mean, there's ABS on there, so it's not going to chuck you over the handlebars, but, um, but definitely, I think on the street where you've got all these surprises, um, you know, riding around, I think it's probably a fair trade-off to have the brakes slightly less aggressive initially. Yeah. But again, as you say, matter of opinion, and uh, and it's an easy fix if you don't like it. Yeah, I mean, brake pads are consumables, and like you said, there is an argument um, for the the slightly less aggressive bite. Um, kind of related to this whole chassis and braking thing, uh, just just to touch on it real quick uses some pretty pretty tall profiled tires now that we're on the oh, really? in, the, in the realm okay um so it uses the Pirelli Diablo Rosso that's one of the latest I don't want to call it sport touring but it is kind of no eh, sportier sensibly sporty that's a good good description for them okay sensibly sport street tire sure yeah you know uh, it has a softer you know it's a multi-compound tire uh, softer at the edges for increased grip. Uh, obviously, it's not at the same level as the Super Corsa, and it is not intended to be really that harder compound in the center is designed to give you a lot more mileage. Because, you know, the Street Fighter V2 is not the preeminent performance Street Fighter, 
you know, it doesn't get the, the, uh, the super crazy sticky tires, but really these tires are more than capable of running a, a, a quite a hot pace in the canyons. And if you wanted to rip a track day or two, you'd be totally fine. Um, depending on your skill level and preferences, you know, uh, for our sake and to really get into the, the whole point of me talking about the tires, uh, you have a standard 12070 front, no surprises there. In the rear, you're using a 18060, which earlier you heard me kind of uh, talking up the Street Fighters handling acumen. And I would also credit the tall 60 uh, profile on the motorcycle as one of the reasons why it's so adept at just getting onto the edge of the tire. Yeah, that's really very unusual to run a a 60 profile tire on the back. Yeah, you know, 60, the, the taller 60 profile is becoming more common in Ducati's line. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, the Panigale V4, the first generation of the Panigale V4 was the, was one of the first production motorcycles to use a 60 profile right out of the gate. Um, 60 profile tires obviously exist, especially in racing and slicks and things like that. But um, as far as I know, the Panigale V4 is one of the first to use uh, that profile just right out of the gate. But now it's coming down to, to other models. And when you use a taller profile, it gives you a little bit more edge grip in the rear. Um, well, you know, depending on which tire has it. In this case, the rear has the, the tall profile. So a little more, a little bit more edge grip, uh, at the racetrack, we actually went to the Pirelli super Corsa SC three compound, formerly known as the Pirelli track day tire here in the United States. It's essentially the same thing. And it's designed to be used with or without tire warmers. I would always recommend using tire warmers for that extra bit of safety. The reason we switched over to those tires at the racetrack is for what I just said, just wanted to purchase a little bit more grip when we're in a racetrack environment, especially at a racetrack that we know, like Buttonwillow uh, Raceway, Buttonwillow, California. It's a beautiful place. Uh, everyone should visit it. And there's lots of sites if you enjoy flat plains of barren nothingness. And, um, you know, um, <laughs> the giant dust bowl. <laughs> yes, if you're <laughs> ever wanted to see what the dust bowl was like firsthand <laughs> right. um yeah but you know buttonwell is a great racetrack it's very dynamic so there's a lot of it's a great layout yeah it's a great variety of corners and straight yeah and it's a really good place to actually test a bike because there's a little bit of everything yeah exactly but yeah the the Pirelli supercorsa sc3 slash track day tire as it was once known um just gives you a little bit of extra grip so uh and, and it's a slightly more aggressive profile as well. So at the racetrack, you just got that extra little sniff into its, uh, you know, into its nostrils sure. for, for the racetrack, which is always appreciated. Um, you know, and that's, that's kind of the, the Street Fighter V2 in a nutshell. You know, it's as far as complaints go, the only things that I really kind of picked up on um, the 955 engine will create some heat. Um, it is a street fighter configuration, so there's no fairing. So you're not just getting blasted through the fairings. Again, it's a high performance engine. High performance engines 
create heat, I sort of assume on anything that's making a decent amount of horsepower or well, not decent in this case, more than respectable amount of horsepower to, of course, have the byproduct of a little bit of warmth. And you're really going to just gonna feel it under the tail section. Right. For sure. That's because the rear cylinder is right there and the rear header just loops around right underneath you. And it's never unbearable. But just as a funny anecdote, I was kind of riding along right when I first got it. And I was like, oh, man, do they put an accessory heating seat on here? Because it kind of feels great. This is awesome. And it was like really cold in the morning. It was like 51 degrees or something. <laughs> and uh, I started looking through the dash and I'm like, oh, there's no, there's no option for this. Oh, okay. <laughs> because of just a little bit of heat from the exhaust. And again, what I want to reiterate is, yeah, you can feel a little bit of heat. And as long as you're moving, you're a-okay. Even when I wasn't moving and we got red flagged on the racetrack and had to pull into the pits and you just kind of sit there on the grid idling along, it never really becomes unbearable but it is something that right sure you'll notice um not to an extreme case again there's plenty of fully fared motorcycles that will just sort of uh blow torch your thighs um but uh yeah and then you know the other kind of minor little complaints is uh, there's no fuel gauge oh right that um don't know why but um just for whatever reason, on a lot of the European sport-oriented models, fuel fuel gauges just aren't there. Right. Um, I can cite the Tuono. It's one of the guilty parties, the Street Fighter V4, <laughs> like the RSV4. You notice the trend here. These are Italian. Right. Um, but I, as much as I, I want a fuel gauge, I also see the logic. It is a sport machine, so... Eh. <laughs> you're going to be riding hard anyway and fuel economy probably doesn't even factor but right whatever it's nice to know if you're about to run out though yeah well, well you do have a fuel light and you know you do have uh your 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 mileage and your trip mileage down below so you can get a good estimation of what's going on you know a little old school in that regard but um right you know and with the whole performance mindset you know, there's no cruise control. I, I do wish it had cruise control because it is the street fighter. Oh. But apparently the street fighter wants to fight the whole time. So no, no cruise control for you. Yeah, a bit more fight than street. Exactly. But uh, the last thing we should probably touch on before we wrap up is the comfort. Um, obviously, it has the upright riding or the upright handlebar to prop up your upper torso, keep you in a nice, comfy position. It's, I would say it's less aggressive than the, the Street Fighter V4, as in you're not putting as much weight on your wrists in that, um, you know, compared to the V4. Just one slight step back in, in terms of um, the, the more aggressive rider, rider triangle. Then you have this really nice plush seat. And the seat height, if I remember the spec sheet correctly, is like 33.3 inches. Uh, should be right in there. Let me double check that. Okay, yeah, 33.3 inches. And kind of with a lot of the twin cylinder motorcycles that we review, when you see these taller seat heights, you know, 33 going towards 34, those are fairly tall seat heights. The thing you have to remember with a motorcycle like this is one, the these brands, Ducati in particular, always works to make their motorcycles quite narrow at the 
seat and fuel tank seam where those two things meet. So you can actually reach your, your boots to the ground quite easily, or at least my 32 inch inseam can. And I would say if you're a little bit shorter than me, you're still gonna have the ability to put your boots on the ground. And you know they've added some cushioning to the seat, giving you a little bit more comfort. Again, you're gonna be on the street more, riding longer miles, longer days in the saddle, you're gonna need that. Um, and then the reach to the foot pegs, plenty sporty, plenty of ground clearance, even at the racetracks when you're carrying really high lean angles, but it's not uncomfortable. So you can still get in an athletic position and do all the good stuff. Of course, it is a naked bike, so you don't really have anything in the way of wind protection. But I will say uh, more narrow bikes definitely do worse than this one. Um, you know, the, the sort of uh, the front end of the bike, the engine uh, configurations and the, the fairing, the limited amount of fairings that are on the Street Fighter do provide some semblance of wind protection for your lower half of your body. Obviously, there's not much that a naked bike can do for the upper half of your body, which is totally exposed. But I was quite happy, um, even at race racetrack paces uh, with a bike. You know, granted, again, when we talk about naked bikes, you always just kind of have to put it in the back of your mind and accept that you're going to have to take it on the chin a bit. So that doesn't just apply to the Street Fighter. It applies to basically all of them. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're sitting upright in the wind. I mean, it's, you know, it's just the way it is. Trading off a little bit of comfort in return for a bit of wind blast, but that's okay. Yeah. And, you know, the speaking of trades, you know, the trade-off is you're not using clip-on style handlebars. So all that weight on your wrists just isn't there. And I'll take a little bit of, uh, right. you know, wind to the chest, which in some cases and at certain speeds can actually just kind of prop you up, <laughs> right. help you out a bit. Yeah. Um, versus riding around in traffic on a fully fared super sport motorcycle, right. which is um, not the coolest thing on the planet. Whereas this thing, I'll do it all day. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So, sounds like you really like the bike. Yeah. Middleweights are, are definitely something that, that I always enjoy because of the more approachable uh, horsepower figures. As much as I love 200 horsepower maniacs, um, you can always get more of a giggle at, out of uh, these more reasonably powered motorcycles. But the takeaway for me is the Street Fighter's handling. And, you know, that is a, a, a sort of a brand goal for Ducati. That's something that, that Ducati has always fixated on with all of their models because, you know, Ducati has tended to really go after lighter weight packaging and just produce a, a more nimble motorcycle than a lot of its competitors in a lot of different cases. Uh, that's, that's just something that, that the brand does. And, um, you know, you, can, you combine that or those handling qualities with that engine, with a comfortable riding position, and that's a good motorcycle to me. So, yeah, yeah you're looking at, uh, you know, a, a decently priced MSRP. It is up there in the 16s. But what you get is quite a lot of bike. A lot of bike for the money, for sure. Hey, thanks. Appreciate hearing about it. Sounds good. Cool. Thanks, man. I recorded this second segment on our recent trip to Queensland, Australia. As you may know, the original Brof Superior motorcycles were first manufactured in England in the 15 years or so before the outbreak of the Second World War. At the time, 
The broth was so exquisitely made that George Broth claimed them to be the Rolls-Royce of motorcycles. And indeed, they really were. The Broth Superior name was purchased a few years ago, and a French design company developed a new version of the Broth based on the original ethos of innovation and spectacular quality. Serial production in very limited quantities started in 2016. Fred Drake is the importer and distributor of Broth motorcycles in Australia. And I was fascinated to visit the Brisbane showroom and chat with him about the motorcycles that he has such passion for. I urge you to visit Fred's website and take a look. You'll find it at brothsuperioraustralia.com.au. I promise you won't be disappointed. I mean, I'm standing here looking at this stunning collection of motorcycles. How on earth did you get into this? Okay. I'm, I'm, I've, I've just a motorcyclist since I was 15 and rode, didn't have a car license until I was 19. And when you could get one when your age of license was 17. And I've always been a motorcyclist, always interested. I was a motorcycle dealer for 15 years. Okay. And maintained my interest. And right. Uh, then I'm in, in business and, and I'm interested in mechanical things. And I go to one of my passions, apart from motorcycles, is classic cars. Nice. And my favourite era is of the 30s, the long bonnets. Right. Yeah, Deco okay. style. And sure. I, I was been to many car shows, Australia and right. Europe, and been to Peterson Museum in the US in Los Angeles. And I've been to went, went to the Paris Retromobile, which is a huge classic car show in Paris, and Brust Superior were displaying. Brass Superior from the 30s. Brass Superior, no, the, Bruss, the recreation of Brass Superior. Oh, the recreation, okay. Which Brass Superior were in production from 1929 to about 1939, 1940. And right, ceased, sure. 1939, because they ceased production. Essentially at the start of the war. Of right. motorcycles and I think they made components for Merlin engines. Right. So, right. So basically, a, a guy called Mark Upland bought the name uh, post war. And he licensed to a, a company in France called Boxer, who were making other motorcycles, low volume. Right. And they were wanted to re reintroduce the Bruff Superior. Right. And if you stand over here, and well, this is part of the context. Okay. If you look across here, this is a 1929. SS100. Yep. The SS100 means it was guaranteed, written guaranteed, that the bike would achieve 100 miles, had been tested and achieved 100 miles an hour for a quarter of a mile. Yes. Okay. And In fact, SS George, George Broff used to personally ride them, didn't yes. he? It was, uh, was it at Brooklands or at Good, but well, sort of around the bank here. Yeah, without, without being t <laughs> taken a task by the purists. Right. Uh, I've read the books, I just can't remember all the finals, but certainly they were tested. In the book I've read, it said they, went, they had, had access to a private road. Right, Other people okay. tell me they were tested at Brooklands. Okay. But, but George had won a lot of prizes racing. Right. So, so speed right. wasn't new to him. Besides an SS80, which had been tested to 80 miles an hour. Right. Guaranteed. Right. So if you look across from here to, if you look across there, You'll see the profiles yes. of this SS100, which is the SS100 is the famous model. Lawrence Arabia right. had 
He had seven. I think he had seven. the eighth on order when he was killed. Correct. Yeah. And Bonerges yes. was his favorite, wasn't it? Yes. And then, so if you look across, you'll see the. Uh, uh, what I say is, is that the modern Bruts have taken the styling cues from the the twenties models, without 20s, a doubt, twenties yeah. and thirties. Sure. And one of my favorite parts of, uh, I love mo naked motorcycles. Yes. And one of my favorite parts of a Bruff is the nickel, the two-tone tank, the nickel sure. and the paint. Sure. Because the one vari variation to the late model engines is that they're an 88 degree parallel turn. I think these ones are 50. That's a, that's a JAP engine. Right. The one over there, I think, may be matchless. I'm not sure about that. Or AMC. No, sorry, AMC. Okay. But the one over the, on the current brass are made by uh, a company in France. Basically, the production is an assembly is made in Toulouse, France, the home of Airbus. Okay. And they've got a lot of overlap. They use the tap in the industry there. So, what can I tell you about a new bruff? I'm going to look over here. <laughs> okay. What, you asked me why I was attracted to them. I, I'm love, I love motorcycles that, are, that you can see everything. Yes. To me, yes. although fairings have a part, to me, I'd much rather a motorcycle without coverings so you can see everything. And that's, that's, why, that's why we have skeleton back watches. Is it? Yes. People like to see the mechanicalness of something. Yes. Yes. So, what Ra wrapping a bike in plastic doesn't add to the looks. True. <laughs> so, and and I think and the Bruss major market really is 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 the, is the person who well, appreciates a high quality product, and um, and likes to look at. It. So I was at Paris and I saw Bruff, and I thought I'd like to buy one of those, and then basically just to have. <laughs> anyway, right. then, then the factory said, well, look, would you, I said, I'm from Australia, and they said, would you like to distribute in Australia? I said, yeah, well, I can do that, because I used to, I was a motorcycle dealer for 15 years. Right, so you so, know how it works. So there we are. So basically, we, we're now the Australian and New Zealand importer and distributor. I see. So now, the models, we have basically three base models in the SS100. The right. anniversary, which is a derivative of it to celebrate Bruff's 100 years, which is got you know, most distinctively is the four exhausts, right? Exhaust systems and the machine tank, the solid aluminium tanks machined, and dress up yeah. wheels, and as right. you can see, right? The um, machine handlebar. The anniversary is the, is the two seat version, isn't it? No, the an that's. The, no, the, the, the two-seat is, is the new model, just released. Okay. It's going to be the Lawrence. The Lawrence, that's it. Okay. Up there. I see. All right. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. I, uh, do you have a favorite? <laughs> Silly yes, oh, I, I, liked, I like the looks of the... You know, it's a bit like asking, do I have a favorite child? Yes. The, the answer yeah. is no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, li I like the looks of the SS100, which is the pure the essence of a, a naked motorcycle with features of you know, stainless steel tank straps. Right. I, I like riding the Pendine Sands because it's got high bars. It's more of an adventure bike style. Right. And then I'm also very keen to get a two-seater two Lawrence. Right. Which looks like it's based on the Aston, 
That's the Martin platform with dual seats. Yeah, yeah. So who is the who is the typical buyer of this? I mean, are they all just trailer queens, or no. or do people uh, actually ride these? Rough superior tell me that sixty percent of the sales are to collectors. Right, sure. and that's been our experience. Um, in Australia, there are 110, 105, 110, 120, 168,000 on a motorcycle. They're bespoke. Sure. In the sense that I don't think there'll be ever two bruffs the same in Australia because of the, the range of variations you can have. Right. If you look at these two here, these two here are the same model. Right. And if you just look at it, you'll see that... They really couldn't be much, much more different, could no. they, in a lot of ways? Apart from the colour, the details. The, the details. Yeah. And we had a... A serious car collector from Victoria, Melbourne, who was very specific that he wanted his all black. Right. And uh, so, so we worked with him to to just get what he wanted. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, have they got any plans for other engines or? Not, I mean, that, I'm, not that I'm aware of. Okay. Because I think they're evoking the V twin. Yes, very much so. I mean, it is very evocative of the original. I mean, of the JAP engines, certainly. Yes. Uh, well, all V-twins look similar. <laughs> well, th yeah, there has to be a certain amount of similarity. Except Ducati a bit more pronounced, and Harley's closed yeah. up, and Victory's closer. Sure, sure. Do you get to have any input on the type of, you know, new models that are being... Not yet. We, we, we haven't... We, I mean, so they are essentially designing them and, and producing the different models, and they're saying, hey, Fred, you know, here's another one we've come up with. Um, you know, do you think there's a market stage. for it? Okay. I think we'll come up with an Australian, what I call Australian version, nice. of what's is suitable here, what people want here. Right. Um, the it's early days. We 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 started business and COVID hit, so we basically right dead in the water for two years. Last weekend was the first time I've been out of Brisbane, out oh, of Queensland, out of Queensland. Sorry. Okay. Well, of course, yeah. For two years. Right. Um, because we had restrictions about getting back in. Right. Um, right, lovely. Well, they are absolutely beautiful. I'm very impressed. Uh, uh, to me, a bruff is a, is a motorcycle that will reveal itself to you to the depth of your knowledge. Right. Of, of componentry. Right. And it's something that when, if you, the more you walk around, the more you sit and look at it, the more you'll see. Right. Some will be self-apparent and some will evolve. Of course, it's like understanding a language. <laughs> right. We have to, we, our depth of understanding is, is, is governed by our, our understanding of individual words. Sure. And so this particular, if we start from the front of the bike, you've got the wheels come to the factory as a blank, and they machine the type they want. Right. Different finishes. Yeah. Uh, and different patterns, obviously. Yeah, well, the different wheels are going to. Sure. The, the so, this uh, clutch cover on the right-hand side. Beautiful. Is, is machined out of a solid oh. billet. Yeah, wow. The brackets is machined out of a solid billet. The, the brake, I suppose, yeah. brake, brake pedal holder. The, the headlight, the frame, the frame main members constructed out of titanium. Yeah, they're very light. Yes. I mean, they're literally only just over 400 pounds in weight. 
which is yes. which is an astonishing achievement. The headlight bracket, little bracket in it, titanium. Right. Um, the swing arms cast aluminium on, on the SS100. Nice little machine Ta uh, number plate bracket, tail light bracket. Then when you get into the Pendine Sands, same engine and frame backbone, but then the front forks are machined out of solid billet and they're a three-piece bolt together. Holy mackerel. That's one, you know, the two sides and the centre bolt together, similar to the rear swing arm. You can see down there the bolts. Solid billet. I mean, the detail on this is mm. absolutely extraordinary. This bracket here, the, the, the cantilever rear suspension bracket. And just the depth of paint. And I mean, it looks like a $150,000 mm. motorcycle. I mean, it's... Uh, this, this particular one, the factory, this Pendine, uh, they had an example of factory that somebody wanted to paint the same colours as their Porsche 356. <laughs> so, nice. They, they do have their stock colours. Sure. But we, but they've said to us, you give us a colour, give us the number, and we'll right. paint it that colour. Right. So, right. So we've had a, had a couple of those. Um, I also love the uh, the instruments, the sort of the big single round, you know, large. Yes. It's almost a little uh, Vincent-like, but you know, sort of, but certainly evocative of that era. You know, you look at you look at the single, single clocks with everything displayed there. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely beautiful. Just, I mean, stunning. I mean, these things are works of art. They are. That's I mean, the, pro the, the challenge is, is really, you should buy two. One <laughs> to ride and one to display and keep, True. And keep perfect. True. You should be running a sort of a buy one, get one free kind of. Should, kind of uh, should, should consider that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you could buy one for 300 grand and you get one free. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> By two, by two of one, one of each different, different right. models. Yeah, yeah, absolutely stunning. I mean, it's breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. But uh, do you do you feel the sort of the connection back to the original brand and the original motorcycles? That's an interesting question. I I, I see the connection in in the looks, and but it's it's an interesting question. Because my, my, most of my experience is post-war, post-Second right. World War. Okay. So, um, but I think the, the styling is evocative. Yes, of very the much. Earlier so. ones. Sure. Uh, yeah, long and low. Yeah, the, even to the stage where the handlebar brackets, similar. Right. On. Yeah. This one here, this SS here. Yeah. Yeah. Same sort of bend on the handlebar, yes. and yeah. And also, these come with a, you can buy. Yeah. One thing they do have available is a hundred, a four-inch riser kit. You can buy a different headstock, top handlebar mountain. Sure. And that's four inches higher. Yeah. So we had a customer Victoria who did a lot, a lot of touring, and he 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 ordered that. Beautiful. So. Beautiful. I think. I mean, George Broff was was such a character in himself. I mean, he was a, a you know, such a showman. Um, yes. You know, he was the sort of uh, 
so a lot of that was was uh, I think uh, of the, at the time was driven by him and his personality. Well, his, um, when you think, see, we go back to the it was the start of the motorcycle industry, and he wanted to. His father was manufacturing motorcycles, right? And George wanted to probably look at a different part of the market, the higher end of market. Right. So he decided to probably be a bit more flamboyant. And right. And he used to advertise them as the, the Rolls-Royce of motorcycles. Yes. Which, so the story goes that in the end, Rolls-Royce allowed him to do so. Yeah, they sent him a cease and desist. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you want to come to my factory, um, you know, and have a look and see if I actually put as much effort into my motorcycles as you do into your cars, then maybe you'll let me use it. Yes. And apparently they sent a couple of white-coated guys along and, and they agreed to let him do it. So after that, he used to say, the Rolls-Royce of motorcycles with permission. Yes. <laughs> True. Which is just classic. I mean, what a personality. What a, what a, I mean, that's great. But if you look at the old one over here, this, this this is a My best friend actually owns an SS100. Okay. Got fine. 1930. Right. So I'm relatively familiar with it. Well, this is a 29 model. Sure. Beautiful. And what you see is the nice little touches like on the, the front brake adjuster. Yeah. The little knobs. Sure. Um, oh, yeah. And just, you know, the damping system. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. Uh, this one's an interesting one. This, this, this particular, this was an Australian order bike in 1928. Um, so it spent its whole time in Australia? Yes. Okay. This one has the, the, the castle forks, which were stand on the SS. This is actually an Alpine Grand Sport, and it has the JAP, right. uh, JTO stroke W is, is really a touring engine. Okay. Three-speed hand-changed three hand Archer gearbox. Right. Castle forks were stand. This is actually the Alpine Grand Sport, as I said. Okay. Um, the fr now this had the rear suspension because in those days most of the motorcycles would have been just rigid like a push bike. Right. So this is the Bentley and Draper spring frame. Right. Which is, for those who are knowledgeable, what we call the start of the cantilever. Right. Twin, pivot it down the bottom and it's got two springs. That's and an amazing concept for the yes. time. I mean, you think about that, 1929. Yes. Uh, before Vincent. Well, it be HRD then. Sure. And then the other thing it's got is a, a Cars Lake prop stand. Now this one was actually ordered to be on the right, which I've never seen a, a prop stand on a motorcycle on the right. Right, right. Some others may have, but I have never seen one. <laughs> and I've seen motorcycles in Australia, the US, the UK, Europe. Yeah. Been to the shows, I'm not familiar, except in Australia where we have ag bikes, we have a side stand on both sides used on rural properties okay uh, just so the farmer can pull up and just open the gate <laughs> right. and, and obviously the slope sure but this is a little drop down there yeah um, interesting bike this one it is yeah yeah my friend's bike um, is known as the Calcutta bra okay it uh, it ended up in Calcutta and, and, and so on and obviously then back in America um, but his one does not have any lights on it, interestingly. Yes. It just has the little, the little um, screen on it, just yes. a little foot thing. And well, it's, it's probably, you know, it's hard for us to think back, excuse me, Liz, uh, when you think back that motorcycles didn't have lights, didn't have speedos. 
Right. That's because but when it, then we, it's always hard for us to think back because we weren't there, because right. because it was the evolution of transport, not yeah. To us, it's going back, but to them, it's forward. Yes. And bef yeah, um, very forward thinking. Yeah. Because as mo a lot of people would know that the early cars and motorcycles didn't have front brakes. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And before, for those who can think back way back, my grandmother told me the story when she's calling my grandfather that he would start the bike and she'd run along and get on because it didn't have a clutch. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's hard for us to imagine all that. Right. I oh, listen, what I'd like to do after to feel this clutch. Okay. These bikes come fully assembled and except the mirror, we have to fit the mirrors on. Sure. In, in, in a big crate. Right. We rolled them out of the crate and when I was in, we pulled the end of the crate off and I was just, I wanted to, just satisfy myself that they had, that the bike was ready to go. Right. So I tested the the front brake. You feel the front brake. Okay. And then I felt the clutch. Okay. I felt they forgot to put the fluid. Yeah, they forgot, forgot to put the. Wow, that is the. That is an AP slipper clutch. Wow, that that's is about the so lightest clutch I've ever felt. Ever felt. That's amazing. Uh, Hydraulic, very yes. nice. And it works. We started. Yeah. We filled the bike up. Started up. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody's put some effort into that. Yes. Wow, that was lovely. The discs yeah. on the SS100 you got, and the anniversary. Sure. And the drivers of them. These are a four four discs with a pad yeah. in the pad between the two, two sure. two, per, two per side, with a so basically the three pads. Right. Right. Per caliper. But obviously, because of the increased surface area of the double discs. You don't have to have a giant, great single yes. disc that obscures all the wheel. Yes, and I so think you can maintain the beauty of the wheel and without losing any braking efficiency. True, and I think they are emulating the the profile of a yeah older yeah. style front drum brake. Yes, if you yeah. look now across. Yeah, yeah. the beauty about having the bike side by side is you can just glance across, sure, glance across and just see the yeah. similarities. Yeah. Obviously, these are water cooled. Liquid cooled, yeah, very nice. They're cooled. Yeah. Um, Absolutely beautiful. I mean, just jaw dropping. Like you say, you could, you could put this thing in your sitting room and just enjoy looking at well, it. Well, and every every time you look at it, you see something else. Having mentioned that the the last one we delivered, we we, we assisted the guy to put into his into the lift. Right. Took it up to his fourth story apartment, right. overlooking the ocean. Nice. And the bike was to, it was an anniversary. Right. And he's, he chose the colour. It was a lovely blue, a light blue. Right. Uh, mid blue, I'd say. And um, he said that no, the bike probably won't be ridden. Right. And um, it's up there now enjoying ocean views <laughs> north of Brisbane on That's the beach. Stunning. Beautiful. So. Uh, do you see the do you see the business sort of going anywhere? You know, in sort of any real growth, or is this just going to remain a really boutique kind of? I think it'll always be a boutique, uh, low has. volume, uh, because there's only there's only so many people who want to invest a hundred thousand, one hundred and twenty thousand dollars right. in a motorcycle. Right. Um, and especially something so detailed. I mean, if you just rode this around and you got you know gravel you know i mean it would just true it would just be horrible i mean it's really you don't want to make the thing dirty true yeah. so the other thing you do is you can have well, the, we can order the seats the, 
we can specify the col seat colours. And, and on, on the on the on the uh, Rough Superior website, they actually have a colour selector for the oh, okay. new Lawrence. Right, right. Yeah. Looking at that one, that's a um, that's the uh, uh, that, that that that's the AMB 001. Right. It's been developed in, in conjunction with Aston Martin. Right. It's going to make a hundred. Yeah. Uh, for the world, it's it's a track bike. Right. Oh, it's actually intended to ride on the track. Well, they call it a track bike now. Right. I mean, it's got lights on it, so I assumed it was a street yeah, bike that you could ride on the track. But it won't have won't have well, certainly here won't have Australian design rule approval. Okay. So, but what they've now done is they've used some of the componentry. Okay. In the new Lawrence, which is a dual seat. Um, street bike variation of it. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Uh, we 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 uh, about to place an order orders for those. Okay. Uh, we, we're getting some interest in them because uh, dual seat. As one guy said to me, he could take his wife with him for a ride. Right. Yeah. I mean, lovely. Why not? Yeah. Now this is the anniversary, which is the a one-off, celebrating 100 years, as we said before. Right. It's a difference, and you can only get this exhaust system on this bike. I see. Okay. Um, and it's got different wheels, different exhaust system. Yeah. The, the tank has been, this is a solid aluminium tank. Right. All the tanks are solid aluminium, but the, the tank is of the thickness to allow them to machine these grooves into the tank. Wow. And there's I aluminium. Just the effort and <coughs> detail and design in this is absolutely stunning. And on the ducktail. So. Yeah. And Euro 4 compliant. Yes. I mean, it's interesting. So it passes latest emissions. And that's well, I think that's driven by the... We don't need Euro 4 in Australia. No. But it's, it's driven by the, obviously, Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, yes. But just the fact that the motor has reached that level of compliance is very impressive. I yes. Mean, normally these, you know, boutique motors... You know, you, you couldn't do that. I mean, the expense and the effort to, to do well, that. Yeah, it's, yeah, I look, obviously they're fuel injected. Um, sure. It's, they've got the canisters, the catalytic converters. Right. Can, I think the catalytic converter canisters are in each. each uh, coming off the other way to one of these pipes. I think it's yeah. that one. Um, in the muffler. Oh, wow. What the yeah, that's heavy. That is a heavy muffler. So that's got all the cat that got the catalyzer in it. Yeah. Okay. That, that has. Yeah. Because these are the the ADR compliant mufflers. Okay. So. ADR as in Australian, Australian design rules. The Australian design rules will accept. I, I'm not the the full book, as you might say, on the, on the Australian design rules. Except there's many. There's probably I suppose the bikes are complying with 50 of them. Right. And that's things like brake, brake hoses, exhaust systems, uh, reflectors on the side. But sure. the, when you when one of the indicators stops working, the, the others keep working. Right. There's a whole lot of issues that have evolved through the years. Right. right. I remember back in the 70s, the only Australian design rule that a motorcycle had to comply with was the hydraulic front brake hose. Right. So okay. it's grown since then. Right. Um, the the Australian design rules will accept the some of the European now. Okay. And so basically, if it if it has a 
if it's past the European standard, then the Australian design rules will, will that'll, they'll accept that. Sure, sure. Well, they're absolutely stunning, Fred. I mean, just jaw-dropping. Um, this is, uh, at this point, I'm sort of regretting that we're audio only and <laughs> we're going to have to, <laughs> have to well, point, point people at your website. So well, that you can you go can on to the Rough Superior and Toulouse, France, yeah. the home of Airbus, have, their, have a very good website. Sure. And we have one for Australia. Sure. Yeah, your website is very impressive. Yeah, so Ruffles, Ruffles so people can see what we're talking about. Yes. And, and, uh, and if, they, if they feel the need to, to buy one off you, I would suggest they give you a call. Yes. Well, basically, we, we, we're equipped to handle the Pacific market. Right, uh, okay. Australia, New Zealand. So the, the big challenge with any of this is, is getting them as the countries around the world tightening up on their import rules right it's, it's you'd have to get local advice on what whether you could come in as a low import or, or a volume import sure uh, the world as it's amazing isn't it Arthur that the, as so many things improve something's still <laughs> passing new legislation to hold us back right uh, yeah life is not as simple as it can be life is not that simple unfortunately I once asked a historian was life any better 400 years ago? Right. Of course, we know from medicine, right. our lives are a lot less pain and trauma. But in other areas, there's a lot more restrictions. Yes, I mean, for sure. I mean, even in my you know, 50 years of observing things, the the, um, the amount of restrictions have come in. I mean, the productivity gains with with uh, the internet is enormous. Yeah, and, the, and you know, being able to send documents and even this you know, podcast and things like that, sure. enormous. But the, but the restrictions are enormous too. Yeah. So we make two steps forward, one step back. We do. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Fred. I really appreciate your time. Okay. It's been great. Um, just I'm uh, stunned. Yeah, but it, yeah that, here, here they shake hands. <laughs>